Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John 17, 20. This is the word of the Lord. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you, lo- you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. So we return back to to Jesus' high priestly prayer as it's known, again this week, and, I'm, and we're focusing on that last section. The verses we just read shift the focus from the ministry of the apostles to the ministry of those, the passage says, who believe in the word of the apostles. In other words, Jesus is now praying for those who take hold of the good deposit left by the apostles In the word, and this means that Jesus has prayed for us in this prayer. He had us in mind, prayed for us directly. And in fact, he's praying for the church in all ages. He prayed, he's praying for the future church, just as he intercedes for us even today at the right hand of God, continuing that work of interceding and praying. For us, Hendrickson said this, it stood out to me, the eye of Jesus scans the centuries and presses to his loving heart all his true followers as if they had all been saved at this very moment when he prays this prayer. It's like Jesus is just taking the church to the ages and bringing it close and, and loving them. You'll remember that Jesus has spoken to his father about returning as the God-man to the glory he had before the father, uh, before the father, before creation. The the glory he had with the father before creation, and then he prays for the apostles' relationship to the word. This is followed by a prayer that they would be in the world, but not of the world. You remember these sections. Those things were most important for the ministry of the apostles, that they be in the world but not of the world, and that they be fixed on his word 
And so those are two very important things that Jesus prayed for his apostles. Now, what does he pray for uh, when he has all of the churches and all of history in mind? And so first, the Son of God prays for unity. He prays for unity, or rather that they may be perfected in unity, or the Greek is literally perfected into one. That's what he prays for. Just as he and his Father are one. And then second, the Son of God prays that the church may one day be where he is. For the joy that they may see his glory given to him by the Father. In other words, he prays for the church's future glory. So he prays for their unity in this life and then their future glory after he returns. And then he concludes with a prayer for both the apostles and the church, believers in all ages. He prays that the love with which the Father loved Jesus may be in them and that he, Christ himself, might be in them. That union with Christ, that that organic connection that believers have with him. So first, unity. Now what do you think of when when I bring up Or just say the word unity. Perhaps you're like me. You think of all kinds of disunity that we see. Um, The great disunity of the church today, we think. Denominations galore. The Presbyterian split peas, right? So many different Presbyterian splits. Every 40 or 50 years, the great division between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics and between... Protestants and Roman Catholics and between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists, right? The divisions are everywhere in the church today. We, we, you know, we sing in that great hymn, the church is one foundation, that the church is by, her- by schism rent asunder and by heresies distressed. So in other words, when I say the word unity, your first thought is the great disunity you see in the church. Um, That's what a lot of people have lamented, and it led to some efforts, particularly in the end of the 19th and early 20th century, to bring the church together as one. That's called the ecumenical movement, right? You, You have the efforts of organizations like the World Council of Churches, begun in 1948, who want to say of themselves that they are, quote, a worldwide Fellowship of churches seeking unity, a common witness, and Christian service. That was their motto. Member churches include the RCA, the United Methodist Church, the American Baptist Churches, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Moravian Churches, the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America. You don't find um, denominations like the PCA or Evangel Presbytery, or any other Bible-believing denominations on that list. And so you see, we are the ones who are disobedient. We are the schismatics who won't join together with churches. And we are the loveless who will not be a part of the Catholic visible church. Right? That's how, it's, that's how the stones are cast at us. Perhaps when I say the word unity, another word comes to mind, and that's compromise. 
Think of our political system. The best politicians today are compromisers, not statesmen, right? Not principled statesmen. They're compromisers. They, they're amazing arbitrators, right? The only way Democrats and Republicans can come together is for somebody to give something up to compromise. That's the way things work. So when a compromise is settled upon and the Republicans once again compromise their principles to protect life, and the Democrats compromise their principles to protect the poor, it's lauded as bipartisan unity. Right? So we easily think of unity as being made possible only through compromise. Perhaps when I mention unity, you think of the word tolerance, a close cousin to unity. Right In our postmodern age that hates distinctions, there's much talk of tolerance. We, we allow every uh, man to go his own way, and each man must be committed to allowing himself and that other man to go his own way. Out of that comes the great goal of unity. Now, it is quite clear that those who sing the praises of tolerance are not, in fact, tolerant. And so, we've seen you know, the, the tolerance buzzsaw, as it's called. And when anything is put up that goes against the, the, tolerant, the laws of the tolerant, then they are uh, very much against that. But often today, there is a cry for unity, and that it, the means is supposed to be tolerance, and that means tolerate everything without God's standard. Perhaps when I mention unity, you start thinking about our um, the fact that, that we're named by our division. We're Protestants. We're protesting something. Our identity is division, right? It's division. We're Protestants. Roman Catholics do things and say things and recite things and pray things that we don't. They pray to Mary though they don't call it prayer, they call it asking her to pray for them. They create pictures and statues of the Son of God. We don't do that. They hold the rosary beads in their hands, using them to make progress through their prayers. The Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church's supposedly ecumenical council to respond to the Reformers, pronounced an anathema on anybody who holds to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's still official church doctrine. Uh, but unity would not remember 500-year-old doctrines, would it? Let bygones be bygones, we say. I mean, after all, Jesus prayed for unity. The Roman Catholic Church the men and women in that church don't know their doctrine. We can't fault them for it. Plus, you know, we must be unified to fight abortion or else it won't be overcome. And so let's, let's be one church, you know, so we can fight cultural battles together. And we all become unified that way because of what? Because pragmatics, because we want more power to fight something on this earth. But should, should Athanasius have placed unity above disagreement with the Arians? 
He could have. Right? Should Luther have placed unity above disagreement with the Pope? He could have. Should Calvin have placed unity above disagreement with the civil magistrates in Geneva? He certainly could have. Wasn't Jesus praying that he, he would do that? Should Knox have placed unity above disagreement with Mary, Queen of Scots? Right? Should Dietrich Bonhoeffer have, have uh, placed unity above disagreements with the Reich Church that supported the racism of the Nazis? Should Martin Lloyd-Jones have placed unity above correcting Billy Graham because he shared the stage with Roman Catholics? Should the Apostle Paul have placed unity above correcting the sin of the Apostle Peter in Antioch? What a bad look. A loss of witness. So in our minds, so shaped by you know, the, our postmodern age, doctrine divides and stands in the way of our unity. Doctrine must be dispensed with so that we can finally be unified. In our postmodern age, unity can only be found through compromise, tolerance, ecumenism, and a commitment to utilitarian pragmatics. The only orthodoxy is a commitment to peace. To divide over doctrine is a betrayal of Jesus and contradicts what he prayed for us, right? Do you believe that what Jesus meant when he prayed for unity in the church, do you believe that is what we mean? Did he really mean that unity should be the aim despite doctrine? Is that really what we should do? When Jesus said this prayer we read earlier and spoke of us as being all one and being perfected in unity, was it a call to compromise, to tolerance, and to ecumenism? Was it a call to make unity the singular priority of the church? Most of the American churches believe that is the case. After all, Jesus did say that unity will have a profound and glorious effect. Look, verse 21, he prays that we would be unified so that the world would believe that the Father sent the Son. Our unity could have that effect. And then again in verse 23, he prays that we would be unified for that same reason, that the world would know that the Father sent the Son, and then adds so that the world may know that the Father loved them. Those are amazing incentives for unity. That the world may believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves them. That's the result of unity. Having been forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus Christ and sent out into the world to spread that message as his priests, who would not want that power? I'm going to go out, I'm going to preach unity, and look, it's going to be amazing. Earlier in the evening, when Jesus prayed the prayer we've been looking at, earlier in that same evening, he said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
In other words, when the brothers dwell together in loving unity, the world, all men, will recognize that, that they are followers of Jesus. Again, powerful incentive to pursue unity. And we remember the great psalm that, that compares unity to an anointing oil, anointing with oil. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. We read that prayer and it's like, ah, unity. Jesus is praying in John 17 that we might experience that anointing, that flowing of oil that covers one with a, a fragrant aroma and a refreshing joy. What we must remember, though, is that unity is not simply a commitment to organization. It's not simply a commitment to peace. It's not simply a commitment to cease all debate. Unity will be peaceful if it is unity indeed, but a commitment to peace above all else, regardless of all else, is not unity, and it's not even peace. Remember, Israel was condemned for their mantra, peace, peace. Turn to Jeremiah 8.8. 8. There... We read this, Jeremiah, <clears throat> 8, 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us and behold the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace. But there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, and they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, says the Lord. Now, did you catch what it said? In verse 9, the wise men, the teachers, have rejected the word of the Lord. That's key, right? So what they have is simply the word peace. Peace, peace. That's all they have is that word. Peace, peace. But they don't have real unity. They have superficial healing, but it's not true healing. There is nothing new under the sun right? The Israelites thought they could have peace without a commitment to God's word. They thought themselves wiser than God. They thought, like many think today, that those nasty doctrines of the Bible divide and can't we all just get along and love one another? And I tell you, that is just the appearance of unity without real unity. It's unity, unity, but there is no unity. It is the claim to have Jesus without loving what Jesus taught. 
It is God without His Word. It is to think we are wiser than God. It is to think we can be sanctified away from the truth of God's Word. Remember what Jesus prayed just before the section we're looking at this morning. Remember in verses 17 and 19, He has prayed that they would be sanctified in the truth, in God's Word. That they would be made holy in the truth. That might... That is the ground of unity, God's Word. That's the only ground of, God, of, of unity. That is the only unity we can have. It is not a merely declared unity. It is not a superficial unity. It is a unity that is wrought by the very Word of God, by God's Spirit, through His Word. Why would Christians think we can be unified only by setting aside His teaching? That's been every part of the ecumenical movement. Unity, if we set aside his teachings. Oh, we can get along with the Roman Catholics. Let's just set aside the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Just the most important doctrine in all of Scripture. Ah! Because unity. Because unity. Oh. Oh, unity. Like Israel, the church heals wounds superficially, has made an idol of false unity, has made it the singular doctrine that really means anything. False unity, though, is not real unity. Look at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The word of God came to the apostles, and the apostles go out into the world with the word, Right? And they take the word out into the world and make others who believe in that word. And as that happens, as the word goes out and accomplishes its purpose, do you know what comes of it? Unity. Unity does. Unity comes. True unity. Believers who are regenerated by the Spirit dwelling together in unity. Yes, it is a mystical spiritual unity about Christ and us being one. But it is also that unity around the Word of God, a commitment to the teaching of the Word of God. It's unity in Jesus Christ, not despite Jesus Christ. It's in Him. Unity because of faith, not despite faith. Unity through the teaching of God's Word, not despite the teaching of God's Word. Right? Everywhere we go, we are seeking unity through the teaching of the Word of God. That one good deposit, that one place of truth, that's where we are always seeking for unity. Despite what everyone says, there is no unity away from God's Word. Why would we think there is? Because we think our methods and our teaching and our love and our kindness and our fairness are better than God's. We've got a system to bring the whole world together. Yeah, and it's called nothing from Scripture. Doctrine divides. Love unites. Where is this unity seen by the world? Where, where is this unity seen by the world? 
let me say that, of, of course, anywhere the Word of God unifies people, that's where it's seen. Whether that is across denominations or countries or languages, but there, but where is it most clearly demonstrated? And I would say it's most clearly demonstrated in the local church. In local churches. In this church. People can look and we're unified around a confession. We're unified around an interpretation of Scripture, right? Our commitment to loving God by obeying His commands will be this testimony to the world. Bonhoeffer, whom I mentioned earlier, was forced to think about unity. He was forced by a church that had abandoned God's Word and was supporting a wicked regime with wicked doctrines. He was forced to ask questions about the nature of the true church. And he wrote a little book called Life Together. It's about the beauty of church unity. And he contemplates unity. He says, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. There's that psalm. This is Scripture's praise of life together under God's Word. That's unity. When we live life together under God's Word. But now we can say correct. But now we can correctly interpret the words in unity and say, when kindred live together through Christ. For Jesus Christ alone is our unity. He is our peace. We have access to one another, joy in one another, community with one another through Christ alone. He says that unity comes when we are under the word. And what comes of that unity? Well, you have to read the rest of Bonhoeffer's book. Church as a family where love reigns as they commit themselves to being under God's word. Wonderful unity. Now, so much for unity. A lot more that could be said. I understand that, but that's what we have today. Now, Jesus also prays for the future glory of the church. The glory, he says, which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. It boggles the mind to think that there's some glory the Father has given to the Son that the Son then gives to us. It's mind-boggling, right? What is the meaning of the word glory? In this prayer, Jesus speaks of his glory. He says the glory he was given to him by the Father. He says that he shared that glory, given that glory to his people, to the church. And he says that he desires his people to see his glory, his glory. Full glory. So what does glory mean? Well, the word in in Greek is doxa and is variously translated glory, brightness, honor, majesty. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kabod and it's it's derived from a word that means heavy, weighty. And it is, so we, we could say that the glory of God is his heaviness his honor, his fullness, it is a way of speaking of all of God's perfections in one word, right? This is the mass of his perfections. To speak of God's glory is to speak of God's perfection in its fullness. This glory that God has is unlike the majesty of a mountain we might look at. We, you know, we, we look at the mountains, we say, oh, it's glorious, you know. Oh, it's majestic in its grandeur, right? We might say, um, you know, we, that's how we would express it if we were looking, looking at some part of creation. And it's great. 
when we speak of God's glory, though, it is more than that. It is the sum of his perfections. It is everything good. It is a massive weight that can't be weighed. In fact, the glory of God is so glorious, it will shine like a light in the new Jerusalem. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will illumine it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So Jesus said that he, when he returns, mankind would see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The angels of heaven cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So not only at the end of the ages, but at the fullness of time when Jesus was born, the glory of God is, is the focus. When the Son of God was born, how do the angels announce his coming? They were singing and singing of the glory of God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. There is nothing greater for the angels to sing at that moment than to sing of the glory of God, the fullness of God in all his power. Anything else they could sing about would be, would be far less glorious. Scripture also says that God does not willy-nilly give away his glory. In Isaiah we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. The glory of the Lord is the Lord's indeed. His fullness is His fullness. His perfection is His perfection. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity, has that glory, that weightiness that no part of creation shares. He does not share His glory with another. In, in his book entitled The Glory of Christ, take it up, it's a great read, John Owen says this about the glory of, of our Savior. After our utmost and most diligent inquiries, we must say, how little a portion of it, excuse me, how little a portion is it of him that we can understand? His glory is incomprehensible and his praises are unutterable. In other words, our puny minds, our finite minds, our creative minds can't fathom the whole glory of God. We can't wrap our minds around the fullness of God's perfections. We can't like fully comprehend his glory, his power, his weightiness. And the Apostle Paul says so in the book of Romans. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And then he shouts, Amen. So the glory of God is his perfection shining forth as a light. It is his alone and will not be shared with another it is even incomprehensible in this life. We only have a foretaste of the glory that is to be revealed. So what are we to make of Jesus' prayer here in verse 22 or where he states he has shared his glory with believers? The, the mind sort of begins to boggle. Now we must assert that he has not made us gods. That he has not done. 
right? If he were to give us the glory he has intrinsically, his glory that is by his by virtue of being this being God, then what I read from Isaiah about him not giving his glory to another would be a lie. There's a sense in which, though, we become partakers of the divine nature, as we see in 2 Peter 1.4. Though we have been created in the image of God, though we shall be like him in the coming age, we will always remain creatures. There will be a distance between what we are and what God is. There will always be a glory that he has that we do not have. Yes, we will reflect that glory, but we will never be equal to God. The Mormons get confused here, right? Mormon heretics get confused here, teaching they become gods. And so what they end up doing is denying the unshared glory of God. In their quest to be gods, they ungod the one God. Put simply, they're heretics. So, we still haven't gotten to my question. What does Jesus mean when he says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, to believers? I think an answer can be gotten from the next verse. Verse 23, Jesus says, I and them and you and me. Could it be that the glory Jesus shares is not his, this ontological glory, the glory that he has by virtue of his being God, but it is the fact that God comes to live within us when we are born again. Think of that. When we are regenerated, when we are converted, right, during the same night in which he prayed this prayer, Jesus said to the apostles, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Whoa. Right? Whoa. Now, the question is, how does he do that? How does God come to his people and take up residence with us? Well, he said it right before that in, in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 14. I will ask of the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Whoa. Again, I just, the rest of the sermon should be, whoa. No, really, stop and think about it. Almighty God living in you. Could this be the glory that Jesus is saying he shares with his people? God comes to his people through the Spirit. Now, that doesn't, now, I mean, doesn't that make sense of the two seemingly contradictory strands that Jesus gives us his glory and yet says he will not share his glory with another? Uh, we become holy without becoming gods. We become glorious without becoming gods. We are still creatures and God's glory is still his alone, but we become creatures in whom the Holy Spirit lives. What holiness we have is from him. What power we have is from him. What anything we have is, is, is vir that is virtuous or glorious is from Him, the Holy Spirit. Everything good we have is not our own, as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians. I count all things to 
be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, but rubbish that I may gain Christ, may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So the glory that he gives to us is his coming as the Holy Spirit to be with us, to abide in us, to live within us. And of course, this is explicitly stated in Romans chapter 8. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I mean, what glory? Think about the glory of God Almighty, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the three-in-one living within you, if indeed He lives within you. Do you think that is glorious? Do you think that there is heaviness, weightiness, glory that comes when the Holy Spirit lives within you? Do you think that that would make any difference in your life? Do you think that you would perceive things differently if the Holy Spirit lived within you? you think you would love differently and serve differently and see differently if the Holy Spirit lived within you? Do you think you would pursue different things if the Holy Spirit lived within you? Do you think peace would rush into your mind and your heart if the Holy Spirit lived in you? Do you think your thoughts would dwell on different things if the Holy Spirit lived within you? Do you think you could suffer and not be depressed if the Holy Spirit lives within you? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, eternal God. I just read Romans 8, 9 through 11. The next six verses describe the glory that is given to us when the glorious Holy Spirit lives within us. And so Romans 8, 12 through 17, here are the consequences of Christ sharing his glory with you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have received a spirit, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of, with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may, not also, so that we may also be glorified with him. You see the glory that is ours when the Holy Spirit lives within us? It means many things. We're no longer slaves to the flesh. We are living by the Spirit and so can put to death the deeds of the body. We're called sons of God. We're adopted sons in His household. 
We're no longer slaves of sin. Rather, we're sons of God who can sing and praise God very familiarly with those words, Abba, Father. The Spirit tells us that we are children of God. The Spirit teaches us the inheritance we'll receive. We're able to suffer with, with just like Jesus did so that we may be glorified with him. Yeah, but what about all my sin? And why do I keep sinning? If the Spirit's within me, you know, is it really that glorious? We all struggle with sin. That we sin does not deny the things above. Calvin says of these verses that they prove that the children of God are counted spiritual, not on the ground of a full and complete perfection, but on account of the newness of life that has begun in them. In other words, being a Christian does not mean instantaneous perfection or even perfection at any time in this life. We're spiritual not because we are instantly perfect. We are spiritual because there is a newness of life that has started in us. We have been changed and that change has started. Whereas we once lived only to satisfy our desires, we now live with a new power. The power of the Holy Spirit that can say no to our desires. We once lived with a different master, our flesh, sins, flesh. We now have a new master, the Holy Spirit, who kills the old man, who kills sin. Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That last phrase, the Spirit dwells within us so that ultimately we may be glorified with Jesus. There is our glory. God is our Father rather than God is our judge. That's our glory, right? We, the church through the ages, like Jesus has had eternally, now have God as our Father rather than as our judge. We, the church through the ages, like Jesus has had eternally, now have the love of the Father set upon us. That's glorious. We, like Jesus has had eternally, now have the inheritance of the Father, and that's glorious. We now have a dwelling place in heaven with the Father, and that's glorious. We now have glory. And Jesus has given to us in time what his Father has given to him eternally, glory. And so be encouraged by this prayer of Jesus. Rest in it. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That glory has been shared with you children of God, children of God who cry out, Abba, Father, every day of your life, and then we'll be welcomed into his glorious presence. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus, and his graciousness toward us that he even prayed for wicked sinners is amazing, but the fact that he prayed and asked you to Give us the glory that you shared with him. 
It's an incredibly selfless sharing. And yet, Father, we know that when you glorify your children, all of them, it redounds to your glory. And so the whole universe will be filled with your glory. Oh, Father, we praise you. We thank you for your mercy to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.